0: The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Sunday, October 2nd, 2022.
1: Rios, don't wait until it's too late. Fire!
0: Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 13th Digest of this second volume, covering Monday, September 26th through Friday, September 30th, 2022. Marvel Saga Monday, Part 7. Time again to return to Marvel history by looking at Marvel Saga, the official history of the Marvel Universe, issue number 7, by Peter Sanderson, who is the writer and researcher, and your editors are Danny Fingeroff with Mike Grunewald and Ralph Macchio. Cover art this time, Brett Anderson and Al Williamson. And a few of the blurbs and the images include... Enter J. Jonah Jameson, and Spider-Man's life will never be the same again, as we see J. Jonah ranting about Spider-Man. Plus the conclusion to Iron Man's origin, including his first explosive meeting with Rhodey, recreating one of those scenes, plus Thor, the Hulk, the Fantastic Four, Ant-Man, Egghead, and much, much more. And on the back cover, we got Loki versus Thor, We have Rick Jones and the Hulk. And we have Thing spending time with Alicia Masters. So Marvel Saga 7, Book 7, The Ties That Bind. And these stories and images come from Amazing Spider-Man 1, Fantastic Four 9, Tales of Suspense 39, Iron Man 47 and 144, Strange Tales 103, Tales to Astonish 38, Journey into Mystery 87 and 88, and Incredible Hulk number 4. We kick off the first seven pages completing the origin of Iron Man from last issue, up to his confrontation with Wong Chu, and walking off into the woods in the gray suit. And in the classic Marvel Saga style, they switch up where they pull this origin from. Pages 1 and 2 are from Iron Man 47, which was released in 1972. And that was a retelling of The Origin by Roy Thomas and Barry Smith with Jim Mooney on inks. And that opening splash page is from that issue. uh, And this is all featuring artwork by Barry Smith. Now pages 3 through 5 we go back to the original story in Tales of Suspense 39, except for one panel that they don't include, and that's by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Don Heck. And then pages 6 through 7 are also from Tales of Suspense, and I thought it was interesting to note that for those two issues, all those years apart, and those two retellings of the origins, or the original origin and the retelling, Both were lettered by Artie Simic. Now here are some story bits that I learned by reading this saga, or reading this origin in the saga, and I don't even, I'm not sure if I ever read the Iron Man origin prior to the saga. So on page two, I realized that it took me watching Iron Man's origin within the Marvel Cinematic Universe And then reading this original tale, for me to realize that Professor Ho Yinsen and his sacrifice and him helping Tony Stark, that is part of the mythos from the very origin story way back when. And I don't know if maybe that bit of information just never carried in my brain. Um, again, I don't know if I read the origin story prior to the Iron Man movie, or maybe I read his origin in one of the official handbooks of the Marvel Universe. Maybe that information just did not stick. So uh, as I was reading it in the saga, I thought, oh, this is all part of, you know, this is part of the Iron Man mythos. Page three, we have the narration calling Tony Stark and his new creation, the Electronic Marvel Marvel. I love when they use the M-word in-house. And he mentions, Circuits are coordinated with my brain waves, And I thought, there you go. Even from the beginning, he's controlling his suit with his mind to some degree. Page four, the dialogue here. Can the thing I have created survive the thing which is less than human? And I talked about this last uh, Marvel Saga segment, because it feels like the original Iron Man story is a riff on Frankenstein, and that is very much, uh, that's Frankenstein-esque dialogue to me, and even the splash page by Barry Smith feels like the monster on a laboratory slab. So I think that imagery, um, maybe this is information that is widely known and I just never knew, but Iron Man and Frankenstein, just like Hulk and Jekyll and Hyde, now seem very obvious. Another thing art-wise... In the saga, page 6, panel 1, Iron Man is working with some kind of magnetic turbo insulator in that first panel, except in this issue, it seems to be redrawn. In the original issues and in the retelling, it has a horseshoe design, and yet here in this panel, they've changed it to like a cube design. Now, there are a bunch of artists that are working on this book in terms of Pulling panels, cleaning them up, etc. And now it makes me wonder, oh, are they even doing some minor tweaks here and there to make some things updated? And speaking of the Marvel Cinematic Universe on page 7, we see Tony use a miniaturized flamethrower to stop Wong Chu. And in the Iron Man Man movie, he uses two very big flamethrowers to help him escape his captors. So again, another nice nod and another nice connection. Pages 8 through 12 is a further retelling of more adventures during Iron Man Iron Man's advent, uh, origin coming from Iron Man 144 in 1981 with Brzezowski and Leighton Art. And this is his retelling of meeting James Rohde, who had already made a, an appearance in Iron Man 118. Um, but I like how the saga can go from, you know, the original Marvel age origin to a later bronze age part of the origin. And this is what's great about the saga because you can make all those connections as you are looking at the larger tapestry of 25 years of Marvel history. James Rhodes, uh, James Rhodes, very much in the vein of Falcon with cap and John Stewart with green lantern. And it makes me feel like there are probably others as well. Also take note how many times the Marvel Saga references the West Coast Avengers, very much like they do with the title X-Factor. They are trying to push certain titles within their pages. Pages 13 through 15 is another Human Torch solo story. It feels very Flash Gordon-esque, where he stumbles on some aliens in Long Island, New York, who take him to their plane of existence through a portal in the swamp. And, you know, we know Man-Thing lives in a swamp that has a nexus of all realities, and this just made me wonder, uh, are there several nexus of all realities, nexi, nexuses, whatever the plural is, and could one of them be found in a random Long Island swamp? To which I wrote, does Long Island even have swamps? There's not much to the story, um, and it makes a return... Uh, these these beings make a return in a later Fantastic Four issue, apparently. One of the aliens is actually named Valeria, which is an interesting choice for Marvel and Fantastic Four history because this is years before Dr. Doom's Valeria. Pages 15 through 18, Ant-Man meets Elias Starr, known as the Egghead. We get to see some more military interjections into these early... Origin Stories, where the government has accused Egghead of attempting to sell secret atomic information to a foreign bidder. Hmm, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? We have um, Ant-Man's confrontation with Egghead, and I like uh, how the saga has been talking about, you know, what what has the Ant-Man been up to to this point? And apparently he's been disrupting the businesses of various New York crime bosses, which is odd and interesting because this is several years before, or yeah, probably uh, months or years before Daredevil, months before Spider-Man would really take on, you know, crime bosses. So in the grand scheme of New York underground crime history, the Ant-Man is really the one that kind of kicked off His, um, you know, his cleaning up of the city. So that's a nice little bit of history that I don't think they really touch on later. We get to see Ant-Man use electronically controlled boot springs, which I love. I think that's brilliant. You know, makes me think of Iron Man and Dazzler with their skates. I wish they would bring those back. And obviously Egghead will return to cause Hank Pym trouble over the years. Pages 18 through 20, we get another Thor adventure. Really, it's notable for the odd Lois and Clark and Superman triangle vibe that I got from these short snippets. You have Blake being lame and sickly and Jane doting on him, all while hoping that Thor is never so weak, you know? We even get dialogue that's similar with Blake saying this might be a job for Thor some more military presence in this story, similar to a lot of the origin stories. Um, this one featuring Colonel Harrison, who is a major player in the 1998 conspiracy micro series, two issues, that put a spotlight on all of those military connections scattered throughout the origin of Fantastic Four, and the origin of Iron Man, and the origin of Hulk, and the origin of Thor. I might have talked about. Conspiracy before it's it's definitely a fun read, and I am keeping a list of stuff that I want to look at after I wrap up the twenty uh, some issues of the saga. They do other saga books, and there are some other stories that take this wider view of the overall Marvel universe history. You know, to try to tell a larger story. So I'm I'm keeping a list. Conspiracy is on that list. Eventually, down the road, you know, another how many months in the future, I will take a look at all that stuff. Pages 21 through 24 features the Hulk and Rick Jones. Again, Banner is dosed with more radiation. I think this is the third or fourth time. But this time, he retains Banner's intelligence while he is Hulk for the first time ever. And as... um, Apparently Banner is confined to a wheelchair at this time, but he has set up a machine to switch him back and forth, meaning that Rick Jones is no longer in control of the transformations and the Hulk no longer transforms just because the sun is out or the sun goes away. They've gone through multiple ways of how Banner controls the Hulk in just a few issues, and it's it's kind of ridiculous, but um, I don't know, maybe they just didn't have a handle, or maybe that was just the hook. The hook was what n- how many new ways we can we come up with uh, to turn Banner into the Hulk. Pages 25 through 26 features the Fantastic Four. They're broke and they get an invitation to go make a movie in Hollywood. but that story will continue in the eighth issue of the saga. And then pages 26 through 32, this closes us us out for this issue, we finally get to Amazing Spider-Man number one. And I'm really struck most by how Parker is totally wilding out about losing his fame and the need for money. And even after Ben's death and after the lessons that he learns... He's still trying to seek fame and seek money and complaining. And there's a lot of teen angst and possibly even some thoughts to turning to crime. Parker's a little bit of a jerk in this early issue. Uh, I guess it definitely takes some time for that great responsibility to kick in. And then we have, you know, a classic Marvel moment, the first meeting of Spider-Man and J. Jonah Jameson. And this is all because Spider-Man wants to help out and help NASA and the government rescue JJJ's son from a runaway space capsule that uh, has an accident in lower orbit. And this is not a sequence I expected at all in Amazing Spider-Man number one, that Spider-Man is going to go try and rescue a space capsule, get on a plane and... Get on a jet and travel to the space capsule. You know, this is not the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man you would think of. Um, but it does remind me of Tom King's first Batman issue from DC Rebirth because that's what Batman did. Batman had to rescue a plane that was crashing down into a city. So very odd, very odd that Amazing Spider-Man is this not a space story, but it's definitely not a city setting. So, there you go. That is my breakdown of this particular issue. We will come back to Marvel Saga issue number eight in two more digests. I mean, it's really all I know how to do. You know, I—I I mean, I—I I suffered through elementary, high school, and college as a wimp. You know, <laughs> no sports, no this, no this is no—I couldn't fix cars. The only thing I know how to do. You know, and I'm making up for lost time. Trailer Tuesday taking a look at a few trailers that I've seen over the past couple weeks. I don't do this often, um, and I don't usually talk about trailers or devote large segments to trailers, but uh, I thought this could be fun because there are a number of movies that um, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm, I want to see that, and those trailers are really good. Plus, today, September 27th, if you didn't know, Ryan Reynolds dropped a message on his various social media sites about Deadpool 3. So, plans for Deadpool 3. So, if you don't want to hear if you're like if you're someone who doesn't like trailers, doesn't like spoilers, things like that, you might want to skip this segment. So, anyway, um yeah, Ryan Reynolds dropped a video about Deadpool 3, I have to imagine everybody has seen it by now, and those plans for Deadpool number 3, which will take place within, or at least with the Marvel, Marvel Studios or Marvel Cinematic Universe, these plans include a rematch with Wolverine. That's right, Hugh Jackman back again as Wolverine. And when Ryan Reynolds said it, I went, oh, yeah, right. That's where Deadpool comes from the first place, right? The first Wolverine movie. So the notion of this being Deadpool, a Deadpool movie within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, apparently, I mean, that is what Ryan Reynolds says. I don't know what he means by it. Um, He said, first appearance in the MCU. Those were his words. That means a lot. I did not finish Deadpool 1, and I have not seen Deadpool 2. I've seen clips from 2 because of all the X-Men stuff. They're just not my particular brand of humor. Um, Along with Thor Love and Thunder, along with the second Suicide Squad movie, Peacemaker. I mean, these are just... They're just not... I don't laugh, and I don't... I feel they're kind of cringy and a little too... The humor is a little too baseline for me. So anyway, uh, yeah, Hugh Jackman has been Wolverine in nine movies. The first three X-Men, First Class, Days of Future Past, Apocalypse. The three Wolverine movies with cameos in the Deadpool movies. But apparently I don't think those are new footage. Um, Considering how hard it takes to get in shape for the character, I have to imagine that Hugh Jackman probably wasn't looking forward to it again. However, when you look at his career, I mean, these Wolverine appearances are the things that really seem to stand out. I mean, his career basically is being Wolverine outside of doing theater, outside of doing movie musicals like Les Mis and The Greatest Showman. All of his other movies in the past five, six, seven years I don't know. They seem kind of forgettable, you know? So, yeah, Deadpool 3. I, I probably will watch that one. Um, then I saw the trailer for Fablemans by Steven Spielberg and co-written with Tony Kushner. Wow, that looks so good. Semi-autobiographical, uh, you know, a, a young filmmaker growing up in post-World war War II era Arizona. Um, his name is Sammy Fableman. He discovers some secret. He explores the power of films. Um, it has Michelle Williams as Sammy's mother, Steven Spielberg's mother, I guess you could say. She can do no wrong in my book, so of course I was gonna. I, I'm like right in on it. Um, Paul Dano finding finding the next level in his career. Ga- uh, Gabriel LaBelle, who is playing Sammy Fableman, the teenage Sammy basically playing arguably the greatest movie director. It's got that classic Spielberg energy. It, it It's in love with movies and movie making. And if you're someone who is in love with all that. Um, plus, I just thought it was an odd choice that Spielberg would decide to go personal like this. But I guess it makes sense. Every filmmaker does it. Bob Fosse did it with all that jazz. So many others did it. Um And I I guess maybe I just thought he would never do it because he's, he's got a real cerebral approach to things. And, and even though his movies are very emotional and very personal, I don't know, maybe I just didn't think there was anything in his life that was worth putting up on the screen, but clearly there is, you know, I just don't, I don't know his history or anything like that. So, and then you got Tony Kushner along, a playwright who is fantastic. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to that. And then I saw the trailer for Knock at the Cabin, which is by M. Night Shyamalan, based on The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. And this trailer had that usual unsettling quality to it. uh, Because I knew it was M. Night Shyamalan, I'm like looking at everything. I'm trying to make connections already, you know. The notebook that the little girl is writing in, the color scheme of the shirts worn by certain actors. You know, do those match up? You got Dave Batista, Rupert Grint. You got Ben Aldridge from Pennyworth. You got Jonathan Groff from Hamilton and Matrix Resurrections and Glee. He's been really making a name for himself. I found out that he was born in Lancaster, and when he was young, performed at the Effort of Performing Arts Center, which is, you know, I know exactly where that is, and I've been there... Um yeah, I, I I enjoy M. Night Shyamalan's movies, even the ones that are, you know, uh messy and faulty or whatever. Um I'm pretty sure I talked about old, that was the last one that I saw, and I enjoyed it, you know. I, I like sitting there and watching these movies, trying to figure them out, or just trying to make sense of whatever it is, wherever the camera is. You know, he has he has interesting points of view for his camera work, so um, yeah, this was a trailer that I, I quite enjoyed. Then we have Glass Onion, which is a knives out mystery by Ryan Johnson. That trailer is just so cool. I love ensemble movies like this. I enjoyed the first one Ed Norton, Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., another David Batista film, and, and many others. Uh, Kate Hudson. Yeah, I, I when I saw this trailer, I was like, that's perfect. That's exactly the kind of trailer I need. Um, I, I of course I'm gonna watch it. It made me watch a bunch of videos from the first movie just to remember that movie. And uh they're clever. They're they're fun, they're clever. They may not be like stellar movie making, but they're just they're just interesting movies that keep you engaged and you get some really outstanding um, actor performances out of them, so I'm hoping that's what we get for this next movie as well, because that's what I enjoyed about the first one. A couple of TV things. Secret Invasion from Marvel. That trailer, you know, I just hope that the energy that I felt in the trailer translates to the actual series itself, right? Um, I think there was a a real kind of disconnect between what I remember... Well, there was a couple things, like... Avengers Age of Ultron. The trailer for that seemed to make the movie a little more heady than what it actually turned out to be. And I can also remember the trailer for The Winter Soldier being much more espionage, much much more deeper, darker conspiracy theory. And then, you know, you watch the movie and it's not quite like that. And and I thought the wrap-up of Winter Soldier was a little too immediate um, so I'm hoping everything that I felt here in this trailer, we get in the show, and that it doesn't just become about a whole bunch of jokes. I want the weight. I want the paranoia. I know it's going to have humor. It's Samuel Jackson, and we got Martin Freeman as Everett Ross. We got Olivia Coleman, um, who's a fantastic, fantastic actress, with all of her connections. Her character uh, has to the Howling Commandos. Uh, Emily Clark, I mean, yeah, I, I'm of course I'm gonna see it. I'm still in the middle of Miss Marvel, but I will see that. And then um a trailer for Hellraiser from Hulu in early October. I remember seeing the original and being a little weird at weirded out about it, but it wasn't necessarily, you know, it's not um I might be getting this wrong. It's not necessarily a slasher movie, right? They're, they're kind of along the lines of what those torture movies are, like Saw and all the other things, or maybe a mix of both. But it did make me think, you know, after I get through all of the movies for Nightmare on Elm Street, maybe I should watch Hellraiser as a franchise because I think I've only seen the first one. So, that's it. Just some quick thoughts about some trailers that I've seen. Um, if you've seen any trailers for anything coming up Uh, in the future, let me know that I should watch, especially if they're good trailers, like really, really good trailers. I like, I, I like trailers. I collect trailers like the Logan trailer and, um, what was it? A Bumblebee trailer. Um, Godzilla King of Monsters was really good. I mean, I just, I like good trailers, you know, they, they kind of excite me. Um, and that's the whole point. So, okay, there you go. That's enough for that segment.
2: Come in Captain August. If you've managed to infiltrate that rebel fortress on the Martian surface, you must destroy it, or Earth is doomed! The whole system's locked down. Nothing works. Wait, the targeting system's accessible. If we can't stop it, at least we can change the target. From our forces here, to their rebel bases firing on us from the surface. Great idea, kid! Switch that around and let's hightail it out of here! Locking in new target... now!
0: While most citizens are relieved, Baron Segan is gone, and the Rebellion has ended. Many feel Captain August is a war criminal who should answer for the destruction of Mars. He
2: can't survive.
1: Once they take what they need, they're going to wipe us
2: out. I'd love the galaxy lately for Mars. But we both know why it really happened.
0: Wednesday Night Fever. Wednesday Night Fever returns where I'm going to give you a review and then I'm going to give you some recommendations for the week of September 28th. The review is all about the first six issues of Batman Superman World's Finest. Mark Waid, Dan Mora, Tamara Bonvillain, uh, Adita Bideker, and a whole bunch of various um, cover artists, obviously. This book is so, so good. And in many ways reminds me when Jeff Loeb and N. McGuinness did um what was it called then was it i think it was superman batman um yeah it was like the reverse of what this is and that was in 2003 and in many ways that book quickly became for me the flagship of the dcu line at the time because it was um superman and batman yet it incorporated the larger dc universe and it had little things in it that would affect the larger DC universe. There were even clues to Infinite Crisis. We got a new Supergirl out of that series. It was high energy. They would put put on, you know, amazing artists, or at least artists that had really good energy. And, um, it was just an amazing book. It was such a good book. This book is right along the same lines. It is Superman and Batman, all of their supporting characters, their friends, their villains, and then you have the larger DC Universe, a lot of the characters that Mark Wade likes, or maybe the characters that Dan Mora wanted to draw. And it also has some ramifications to the larger DC Universe, even though these issues and this story takes place, um, what do they say, in the first... Uh, the first page is something like a long time ago or, you know, in the not-too-distant past. Many people are, are describing this as a Silver Age book. I see it more as a Bronze Age book, maybe late 70s bronze or even early 80s, because you have Supergirl in her costume that she received right before the crisis, and you have Dick Grayson very much the teen wonder, not the boy wonder, but the Teen Wonder, who is not quite yet at the point where he has the fallout with Bruce about leaving Hudson College, Superman, Batman are early, somewhat early, in their friendship and their partnership because, for instance, this is the first time Superman meets Poison Ivy and they they discuss their villains in, in ways that make you go, okay, they clearly don't know all of their rogues galleries just yet. And then you have, you know, characters like um, the Doom Patrol and um, the Teen Titans show up. And it all just feels very much, it's the energy of the 80s. That's what it feels like to me. Uh, it also feels very much like Mark Wade's Justice League Year One or JLA Year One that he did with Barry Kitson that starts out small and then involves more and more characters as you go on until it becomes this... Um, you know, big, really big story. I talked about the first issue before, I read the first three issues before, and now I'm up to issue six. Dan Mora's artwork on this is, really, that's why you need to come, to come to this book. You also need to come to this book if you want a story set within the DC Universe that is not necessarily tied to everything that's going on around it. Even though there are nuggets of future stories, I did not feel like I needed to know anything about any of these characters outside of this book, um, which really just works. Now, it is going to eventually tie into Batman versus Robin, but for now, it is just what it is. But as I mentioned, the artwork absolutely sells it. I love Dan Moore's energy. It's very kinetic. I love how he constructs a page, the composition, paying attention to both characters and trying to give them equal weight when he wants to, Uh, the designs for characters... Putting Robin in pants. The battle suit uh, Luthor that you see, you know, very briefly. Phantom Zone villains. Paying attention to little details. Uh, for instance, there's a flashback to this flashback story. And it's in an older Batcave and the equipment looks older, right? And and that makes sense. Um, Batman himself is very much like the superhero version. Not quite the Jim Aparo version, but definitely the blue-suited Batman And Wade talked about how he wanted this version of the team-up to be somewhere between them being really good friends and adversaries. You know, they're sort of in the middle. And you can see that, because the way they work together, they respect each other, yet they're not chummy-chummy. And that's the point, because then there are scenes where some of that emotionality of being a friend comes out in very great ways. You know, in very great writerly ways... And in ways that make you feel like, yeah, you want these two to be the best of friends. There was one great sequence in the first issue where the character of Metallo is, uh, you know, fighting Superman. But Dan Mora has is is drawing a sequence featuring Batman. So you have Metallo's words over a Batman sequence. And what, what Metallo is saying is, my humanity has been taken uh, he talks about how he is without tenderness, without kindness, without warmth. Uh, I can no longer love, nor want, nor care. Can you imagine what it's like to have your heart carved out by tragedy, uh, forever wondering if all, all that can fill the emptiness is vengeance? Clearly, Wade is talking about Batman. That's why, that's why those words are overlaid on top of Batman's sequence. And it's a really good insight into the character and to what people think about Batman. And yet, um, by the end of the story, by the end of the, the five issues, you see that that's not what he's all about. And that's ultimately the point. So really good Mark Wade stuff going on. The whole thing involves a new mystery demon named Neza. I kind of wish he didn't look like Trigon. I kind of wish maybe it was an already established DC Universe villain that um, Wade just sort of updated, Um, but I guess he works. Um, This just kind of layers into some new history within the larger DC Universe. Supergirl and and Robin have a really hilarious team-up where they have to go back in time and learn about the character, and you get some emotional moments by the end when they have to figure out how to defeat him, Uh, and all of that is really, really good just superhero comic book stuff. Issue six, which is a Robin spy spotlight because of what happens in the first five issues. Uh, and it's a fill-in story with um, uh, a different artist. You got Travis Moore on the book. Uh, this was kind of a dip. I, I, I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I know people will enjoy it. It's a well-crafted story. But because it involves time travel, there's a whole lot of questions like, you know, if Batman and Superman and Robin are in the past and doing the things they're doing, why is that not, you know, reflected in time and um it's it's really just a stand in, a fill in issue to give Dan Moore a, a break, probably. I wanted the I wanted the story to be richer and deeper in the way that I got from the reading experience the first five issues, you know? I, Ultimately, I think issue six isn't is entirely skippable. Um, even though it might have people, you know, you might enjoy it. I felt it was just not up to the same quality as the first five issues, surprisingly. The first five, however, stellar, absolutely stellar. I mean, I just can't talk enough about Dan Mora. Dan's artwork feels like a new vision of the DC universe has hit. And we always get that every few years or every few um, major DC resets, I guess you could say. I mean, I think all the way back to, like, Chuck Patton felt very different on JLA from what came before. Or Tom Grummet on Titans. Or Howard Porter on JLA. I, I I mentioned Ed McGinnis. I mean, when Ed McGinnis was doing Superman and then Superman and Batman, that was a whole other energy. Nicholas Scott in many ways. Definitely Yvonne Hayes. Um, artists in the New 52, you know, Mikhail Hanin and Jam, uh, Jamal Campbell. Certainly Bruno Redondo, I think, is making, uh, you know, next-level stuff. And these are artists that have... Uh, they're very much their own style, but then they tend to influence others, whether they emulate that style or they sort of go, okay, right. Let's match that energy. You know, certainly, you know, I skipped over all the image group, but, um, I would put them in there as well. But in terms of the DCU, that's really what I'm talking about. And I'm sure there are more too. So, um, yeah, that's what I, that's what I feel about this book. It's, it's so, so good. So if you haven't read it, find it on the app get a trade of the first storyline. If you're someone that has been out of the DC Universe for a while, but your love of the DC Universe is from the 80s, you're going to love this book. So let's wrap it all up with my recommendations for the week of September 28th from Image Little Monsters Trade Paperback volume 1, collecting the six-issue series, $16.99, by Jeff Lemire and Dustin Nguyen, all about how the last children on Earth happened to be vampires. It comes across as Lord of the Flies meets any great vampire story, so go check that out. We have from Abrams Comic Arts, The Keeper, uh, $24.99, Tananarive Dew, Stephen Barnes, Marco Finnegan. Aisha's parents were killed in a car crash, and now she must move to Detroit to live with her ailing grandmother. Shortly after moving in, Aisha's grandmother's health rapidly deteriorates, and with her dying breath... She summons the dark spirit that has protected her family for generations. At first, it seems that this spirit, whom Aisha refers to as the Keeper, is truly doing, as her grandmother asked, caring for Aisha and keeping her safe. However, it soon soon becomes clear that this being can only sustain itself by stealing life from others. As the Keeper begins to pray, on the apartment building's other residents, Aisha and her friends, must come together to, to destroy it or die trying. From Oni Press, we have Pink Lemonade Number 1 by Nick Cagnetti. And this is just a, a, a series of, of just um quirky comic book creations. I mean, I... I uh, she has a colorful costume. She has a motorcycle. She has a, a, <laughs> a weird name, Pink Lemonade. $3.99. There were some other comics previous to this, and I just like it. Every time I see it, I'm like, yeah, I kind of want to read that. Um, we have August Purgatory Underground 104. And this is by Benjamin Morse. And this is $3.95. Red 5 Comics, and that is the trailer that you heard leading into this segment. Uh, As a long civil war ends, the once-celebrated hero, Captain August, finds himself in the center of an intergalactic controversy. Running out of time and options, he accepts a dangerous mission to a decaying planet and finds that the war isn't nearly over. This is an action-packed sci-fi thriller that remixes the nostalgia of 80s cartoons in a contemporary style, uh, that trailer reminded me a little bit of, kind of like the premise for uh, Strange Adventures by Tom King as well. And uh, look for the Archie Encyclopedia soft cover, nineteen dollars and ninety nine cents. It is an encyclopedia of all of Archie Comics characters in a in a who's who type style. Uh, you know everything from. Dilton and Ethel and Archie and Betty, of course, and Moose. Uh, but then it has a whole bunch of other things. It's 300 pages of facts and trivia and comic book art from the 80 years of Archie Comics history. And you even get some things um, from like the various interpretations over the years, like Archie Horror and Little Archie, the Super Teens, and more. So uh, I love. Who's Who type books, and this one just you know, I was like, Oh, this is so cool! I I really want to read that. And then finally, we have Black Adam Rise and Fall of an Empire. This is a collection, $34.99, that collects the Black Adam story from the '52 Weekly Comic, and it does have a photo cover, at least this version um, of, you know, The Rock as Black Adam, so that's kind of like, nah, at least the versions that I've seen. Maybe there's a comic book version. But if you want to read all of the Black Adam stuff from 52, this is a great way to, to read that, uh, because his section was pretty good. And, you know, it features Isis, and it features, uh, um, Osiris, and, um, He was already a great character by this point within the DC Universe, and it just made him a better character. So, there you go. My recommendations for the week of September 28th.
2: What do you get when a fantasy gaming horror sci-fi geek... And an Army veteran history nerd want to do a comic book-related podcast. Why? You get the Weird Warriors podcast, of course. Weird War Tales was a 124-issue DC comic book series published from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll sidetrack on to an occasional special mission, where we discuss an issue of a like-themed comic book from a different title or publisher. There are also the rare Road Warriors episodes, where we report on comic-related road trips like or visiting the homes and grave sites of comic greats. We'll nitpick what the comics creative team got wrong and crawl about what they got right. We'll also break down the facts behind the fiction in the stories, which is sometimes quite weird in its own right. Even the letters page and our favorite ads can't escape our judgment, just as we can't escape yours in our own dead letter office mailbag. Torpedo-eating dinosaurs. Haunted chateaus. Time-traveling rats! Zombie robots! Day-walking vampires! Gargoyle armies! And that's just in the first 20 Weird War Tales episodes. So, report for duty with the Weird Warriors podcast with Max and Rich, where we promise to make war no more.
0: Today in history. Well, actually, tomorrow in history. Today is September 29th, but tomorrow, September 30th, 2022, is the 40th anniversary of one of the greatest sitcoms on all television. I think you will recognize which one. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries Sure would help a lot Wouldn't you like to get away Sometimes you
2: wanna
1: theme song uh, when we were doing the show I uh, I have a friend New Yorker's investment banker John Angelo and we were looking for a theme song Uh, so John called me and said well John had called me a couple years before and said his wife Judy had had, uh, finished raising the kids and was trying to get back in the music business she was in the music business so when I when we were looking for a theme song I called John to say well I give you know what Judy got, so she sent us this album uh, <clears throat> to a musical they were doing called Preppies, which had a song called People Like Us, which I played and I played for the boys. We loved it. Oh my God, People Like Us, da, da, it was great, syncopated, and it would. you know. <clears throat> So we called John, said we want to use this, and Judy got on the phone, said you can't because it's opening, we're doing this play, this musical. Oh, shit. Oh, no. What else you got? Well, we'll write you something. Okay. So they sent us two. They sent us a tape with two songs on it. First song. Second song was Where Everybody Knows Your Name. And it had lyrics that I'm sure you can find somewhere that are much more... They're much funnier than what we did, uh, but we just told them to go, buy, go and write mundane lyrics because people would have to hear him week after week after week after week, hopefully. (laughs) So you want, you know, not doing jokes all, the the same joke over and over again. So they they wrote mundane lyrics, and you have you know, that that line, which I think is more identifiable with the show than any other line ever, which is where everybody knows your name, it says everything you want to know about that bar. And so that's how the theme song. And the titles were, uh, we wanted pictures of all the bars from cavemen on we talked to a castle bryant was a company that were doing titles so we said why don't we have pictures of all the all the bars from the beginning of time and you put that together and they they went off and they came back and they said well we took your bar and we morphed it into what it was and done pictures of people who would be you know the like it was the old people from Cheers and it just again it was just two forces with the right idea coming together hello Sam are you Sam yes he's here someone named Vicky no no
0: no no no,
2: no
1: she knows you're here I told her you're here Now look, I'm sorry I was wrong. He had to step out. Where? Well, um, I think what happened is he, uh, he had, he had to go to mime class. (laughs) Yes, yes, I'll, I'll take a message. You're welcome. Well? You're a magnificent pagan beast. Thanks. What's the message?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Feedback Friday. Feedback Friday for the month of September, now that we are here at the end and getting ready to start the Digests for October. We only have a few that I noticed here. We have Chris Beckett uh, dropped a message ...on the website for the Digest for August 28th... ...and says, uh, "...your comment regarding the Superman story in Wednesday Comics... ...that you can't love every strip really spoke to me. This is one of the things that I love about anthologies... ...that you don't need to love everything. Though it could also be said that the variety found in anthologies... ...is what can be enticing if one wanted to put a more positive spin on it. And then Chris goes on to uh, recount uh, a story that happened to him at one of the Wizard World Chicago's about this notion of anthologies and how some stories are good and how some stories are bad or, or not as good. And meeting uh, uh, Joe Pruitt, who was uh, you know in charge of negative burn from Caliber, caliber press and how sometimes being honest about <laughs> anthologies is not always the good thing. So that was, uh, Chris, thank you for sharing that that story. For the latest trivia segment in the Digest for September 25th, both Ed Moore and Eric and Chris, I believe, uh, all had comments about you know how many Uh, trivia questions. They actually had some of them more than some of the previous trivia segments, which is always good. Those are always fun to test your knowledge, right? We're all getting old. Who knows what we remember? And then um, I received in the mail from Matt Williams the Dragon Con 2022 program, or more specifically, it's called the Quick Start Guide for 2022. And it has everything that you imagine would be in there, you know, a list of events, schedules, maps, diagrams, information about, you know, the what's going on around Dragon Con in terms of hotel and entertainment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It is so, uh, there's a lot. It almost rivals kind of like the San Diego Comic Con itself, uh, the program, you know, in, in how much content is in there. But really, why Matt Williams brought it to my attention is because the cover is in tribute to George Perez, who was a staple at Dragon Con. And it is a take on... well, it's the Infinity Gauntlet number one cover. It has some of the images from the actual cover, but then they also spliced in various pictures with George Perez over the many, 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 many many years with fans, with cosplayers... Um, you know, uh, just, uh, I mean, I, how many is it? One, two? Three. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them, you know, here's one with a whole bunch of different Wonder Woman cosplayers, the classic Crisis number no. seven cover homage and Perez is, Perez is in all of his, you know, classic traditional Hawaiian t-shirts. So it's an amazing cover, uh, when Matt reached out and said that he had picked up a copy for me. I was just, you know, honored and thrilled to receive it to add to my larger George Perez collection that I've, you know, been amassing over the many, 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 many years. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that, Matt. I really do appreciate that. That's really it for this segment. I do want to let you know, if you haven't already, um, if you haven't checked out the CGS feed... There have been a number of episodes uh, since last year. Um, we're up to what five or six now. First, we started off with Brian and I, just you know, going back way old school CGS style, you know, from the very first episodes and the very first. It would be Brian and I by ourselves, or with some of the other hosts, um, you know, until until we hit episode twenty-five, and then that's when we became. That's when we included everybody. Into the show, um, Brian and I have recorded a couple episodes since last year, and just recently, with episode eighteen sixty three, Shane has joined us for an episode, and then with eighteen sixty five, we now we brought in Pants as well. So Brian, me, Shane, and Pants on episode eighteen sixty five. It is total, uh, geek talk. There's very little programming or there's very little structure. It's just us. It's a bunch of friends getting together like we used to do way back in the Golden Eagle days. Um, and we are just talking everything from comics to TV to movies to to general state of of <laughs> advanced age. You know, many times it becomes old geek speak. Um but it is it's really a lot of fun and it's very casual and like i said there's very little homework there are things that we talk about that we might you know might want to read or something like that but it's it's total old school talk so if you liked those episodes and you didn't know that there if you sort of dropped off the cgs feed go back you know go back to the website type in my name or brian's name and you'll see all the other episodes that we've done and then just recently with Shane and with Pants. So, uh, yeah, just just a lot of fun. Uh, again, thank you to everybody who writes in, people who reached out during COVID. I really appreciate that. Uh, and just a general thank you as I continue on here with the Daily Rios Digest. Um, and I should have a couple of things that I want to talk to you about, uh, you know, either at the end of October or sometime in November. So, all right, here we go. Peter at the DailyRios.com is the email, or go visit the daily website or the DailyRios Instagram. Peter J. Rios is my Twitter. You can review me on your favorite podcast catcher. Send me your promos. Send me your book club recommendations. If you want to gab with me for an hour about a certain trade, collection, or original graphic novel, let's do it. This has been the Daily Rios episode 582 for Sunday, October 2nd, 2022. Talk to you soon.
2: Who is Spider-Man? He's a criminal, that's who he is. A vigilante, a public menace. What's he doing on my front page? Mr. Jameson, your wife is online one. She needs to know if you... Mr. Jameson, this is a page six problem. We have a page one problem, shut up.